So today I am excited to talk to Dr. Katie McCarthy and Dr. Danielle McNamara. Katie McCarthy is an assistant professor of educational psychology in the Department of Learning Sciences at Georgia State University. Katie studies the cognitive processes involved in reading comprehension and how those processes vary across disciplines and across readers. She also conducts research that explores how technology can be used to study learning and how it can be used to help students improve their learning through computer-based literacy support. She has received research funding from the Institute of Education Sciences, the National Science Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, as well as the American Psychological Association's Division 15 Early Career Research Grant. Danielle McNamara is Professor of Psychology and the Director of the Science of Learning and Educational Technology Laboratory at Arizona State University, which conducts research to better understand cognition and learning, with a particular focus on reading comprehension and writing processes. She is the founding editor of the new open access journal, Technology, Mind, and Behavior, which is published by the American Psychological Association. Dr. McNamara has also been associate editor for five other journals, including the Journal of Educational Psychology and the Journal of Learning and Instruction. Her numerous contributions to the study of discourse processing and text analysis were recently recognized by the Society for Text and Discourse with the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award. She is also a fellow of the American Educational Research Association, the Association for Psychological Science, and the Society for Text and Discourse. Today, we'll be discussing Katie and Danielle's 2021 article in Educational Psychologist entitled The Multidimensional Knowledge and Text Comprehension Framework. Katie and Danielle, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. So can you give us just a, a brief summary of the main focus of your article? Great. So this work is driven by a lot of studies out there that show that what a reader already knows about a topic is a strong predictor of comprehension. But often we talk about this relationship in overly simplistic terms. So for example, a lot of studies talk about differences between high knowledge learners and low knowledge learners. But knowledge is more complex than high and low or more and less. And so we developed the multidimensional knowledge and text comprehension framework as a way to more systematically and more carefully talk about the nature or structure of a reader's prior content knowledge. And what the multidimensional knowledge and text comprehension framework, or, or more simply just the MDK or MDKC, proposes is that prior content knowledge is comprised of four intersecting dimensions, and these dimensions must be examined both independently and interactively to fully identify how prior knowledge influences comprehension. So we examined the existing literature and we identified four different dimensions of prior knowledge, amount, accuracy, specificity, and coherence. And in the paper, we walk through the sort of knowns and unknowns about each dimension. But just for now, for this summary, I'll just sort of define them here and then we can use that as a jumping off point. So the first and most likely familiar dimension is the amount or how much a reader knows. The accuracy dimension refers to how correct or incorrect that knowledge is. The specificity dimension refers to how relevant a given piece of information is to the upcoming reading task. And so it isn't that knowledge itself is necessarily specific or general, but rather how relevant is this piece of information in this particular context. And the fourth and final dimension we'll talk about is coherence. And coherence is most closely related to this idea of the structure of knowledge. And what we mean by coherence is the interconnectedness of the information in the reader's prior knowledge. So that's really helpful. I want to talk about all of those. And I have to say, I love articles that make me kind of sit back and wonder why I didn't think of it sooner. You know, like everyone measures prior knowledge. It's really important. It predicts so many things. And yet you are exactly correct. It's, it's much more complex than how many people think about it or assess it. And your article with these four dimensions, I think, is just really helpful to get us to think more systematically and in a, in a deeper way about prior knowledge. So 
thank you for writing it. It's going to be a big help. So let's start with a mount, which is the one that people might be most familiar with or might be the dimension that comes up most frequently for people. And, and you argue that typical measures of the amount of prior knowledge are insufficient. Can you tell us why they're insufficient? So amount is the general way we think about knowledge. We think about how much does a person know. So we give a test and then there's the general rule of I tap into a certain number of questions and you answer them correctly, then you have the knowledge. And we've been using amount across so many areas in education and research and various areas. And what we see is there's just more to it than amount. Amount is important, obviously, but there's more components to it, more dimensions that need to be captured in order to better understand the effects of knowledge. Yeah, I think it's easy to think about amount as just the number of word units or the number of appropriate statements or the number of items that someone gets correct. But as your paper illustrates, there's much more to amount and the ways in which we think about amount and how they interact with these other dimensions. And and a dimension that you bring to light that I'm particularly interested in is accuracy. So can you talk to us about what you mean by accuracy and how you think it's helpful in understanding the role of prior knowledge and text comprehension? So when we're thinking about the idea of accuracy or inaccuracy of knowledge, we're really talking about the fact that people can know something that is not correct. And what can be problematic with that is that we use that knowledge and that knowledge can get activated and can get incorporated in the representation of what you're reading as you're reading it. And so you might know something that's not correct and then it becomes part of how you're understanding the piece. And so that it can really derail the way that you're understanding something. And so we want to know not just how much you know, but if what you know is potentially wrong because that is going to change the way that you might understand something or you might construe the information that's in the text. And that can have some pretty detrimental consequences. I think that the way that people generally think about accuracy is very related to amount. So they think that if I answer X numbers correctly and then answer Y number of questions incorrectly, then I have Y number of inaccurate knowledge because it's wrong. That is more related to whether or not you have the knowledge and not whether or not you have inaccurate and accurate knowledge. Mm -hmm. So in the dimension of accuracy, we're really trying to bring out the notion that people do have both what is deemed by some expert, which is, you know, questionable, but what is deemed by a majority of people as true or accurate, Mm -hmm. and then other knowledge, which is deemed by some group of people. And so it's always debatable. It's, you know, whether something is accurate or inaccurate and the degree to which someone would say, oh, that's wrong. And then later, you know, I, I have a hard time talking about this without talking about coherence at the same time, because what's really, I think, important is the connections between these pieces. Mm -hmm. So if I have a really well-connected knowledge base, which is all inaccurate in some sense, that is just linking together potentially to some accurate stuff and some inaccurate stuff, 
that really creates a knowledge network, I'd call it, that's mm-hmm. hard to break. Mm-hmm. So if I just have one piece of inaccurate fact, like who's the third president, and then I say, oh, no, it's not that person, then that's really not an issue. I just, ha- you know, I was wrong, and then you tell me, and then I'm, now I have the accurate knowledge. Mm-hmm. But really, I think it's the connections between the pieces. Mm-hmm. And those connections are really important. It's one of the things we're trying to drive home in terms of the dimensions and the interactions between what kind of knowledge that a student, a person has, and how those are connected, and then how much. You know, how much is important too? And all of that comes together as something that we need to consider and better specify when we're talking about knowledge. And I'll say that I'm a person, a researcher who is probably most guilty of (laughs) just looking at amount and just saying high and low knowledge. And knowing that it is so much more complex really drove us to write this paper. So that illustrates it really well. And I think there's a difference between not knowing something and having an incorrect idea about it or incorrect knowledge about it, right? So, and when we just count amount, as you said, we don't know if it's, well, I just don't know anything else about that topic, or if it is in fact the case that I have all these misconceptions, misunderstandings um, that could be impeding my ability to understand. And as Danielle, as you said, then the coherence of the correct and incorrect information can affect how strongly it influences my comprehension and my ability to change my understanding. So I think you're illustrating really well how these things all connect together. Am I, am I capturing that well? Yeah, Jeff. And, you know, another thing I want to point out is the division of the fields. Mm -hmm. So those who are measuring inaccurate knowledge or misconceptions do not measure overall knowledge. And Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. who are measuring Overall knowledge don't measure inaccurate knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so those people, there are a few who do both pieces of research, but they don't ever do them together. Yeah. So we saw this as a serious gap in the literature and in our understanding of those pieces of how to understand misconceptions and how to understand knowledge in general. And that strikes me as so important. And again, again, I I love things that when you explain them to me, I go, well, gosh, that makes perfect sense. But prior to having them explained to me, I didn't think about them at all. So that's one of the things I really (laughs) like about this paper is, you know, it's immediate like, oh, of course we should be doing this. It it strikes me that, you know, vaccine hesitancy is a nice example, right? So it could be the case that people just don't know a lot about vaccines or viruses. And that person, you would probably try to help that person feel better about vaccines in different ways than you would someone who just has a lot of misconceptions about vaccines and this really integrated, coherent set of misbeliefs about vaccines. You would you would approach that person differently in trying to get them to understand the importance of vaccines and how they work. That's a really good example. Very on point. We actually have a text set on vaccines and how, you know, the number of people who know about vaccines at this point has drastically increased. Mm-hmm. But we still have, you know, some people who have a lot of inaccurate understandings of how vaccines work and mm-hmm. the impact of vaccines. So then 
Katie, you had mentioned specificity, and that was one I, I think it'd be reasonable for people who know a little bit of something about this field to think that specificity meant like domain general versus domain specific. But as you said, that's not quite what you mean. Can you help us better understand what you mean by specificity? Yeah, and this is really where a lot of this work came from was what we noticed when we were going through the literature is that sometimes these terms are used either interchangeably or sometimes when someone says domain, they mean a subject or they mean a particular discipline. Or, you know, Domain could mean science, domain could mean ecology, domain could mean biological sciences in different places. And so part of it was just that the language and terms that are used are not always the same. And that's something that we saw as an issue. And so one thing we tried to address in the paper is that we propose a a sort of taxonomy of way of talking about this. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% open to people challenging that or providing additional suggestions. It's just the way that we've been thinking through things. Mm -hmm. But what we really mean is that you have a knowledge base and you have a representation in your head and that knowledge doesn't just disappear. It's always there. So a piece of knowledge that is specific to a particular text is general science knowledge, for example, for a different text, right? So think vaccine is a good example here. If the, the topic you're reading about is vaccines, that knowledge is very related to the text you're about to read. But I might know other things about science, or I might know something about viruses more generally that's not specific to this text, but that it will support my understanding of what's going on. And so depending on what you're reading, any of the information you have might be more or less close to the ideas that you're going to be reading about. You know, Jeff, this is something that Katie and I talked about and struggled with quite a bit in terms of the specificity, because largely the literature has talked about it in general, in essence, almost hierarchically. And we really struggled with how to think about the specificity in relation, always in relation to what's being talked about, the lecture, the text. It's always a moving target. And that's why we have to think about it in terms of a network. It's this network of information, but it's always in relation to what you're trying to process. So mm -hmm. that's why something that might be specific for one thing you're trying to understand may be quite general for another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really, I think the taxonomy is really helpful and you have a great figure demonstrating that in the article. And you also have this table, which I, just kind of blew me away. I thought it was so helpful. You discussed how... Different studies found different relationships between prior knowledge and various outcomes and different levels of specificity of that prior knowledge. And what you did was kind of organize these five studies in terms of what they were talking about in terms of your taxonomy. And once you classified the type of prior knowledge assessed in each article and kind of aligned them, the results were much more consistent. And I thought that was just a wonderful illustration of how important it is to attempt to consider specificity across studies. So I, I thought that was really, really helpful. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that really, uh, putting together that table and discussing those papers and really thinking through that, I'd say that the entire article was born of that. That's where we started thinking about things and then started thinking about other ideas we were having. And honestly, many of these discussions did happen over beer. So mm -hmm. we strongly recommend discussing topics like this in more relaxing environments. 
Sure. Yeah, we we talked about a lot. So a lot of phone calls, a lot of uh, Zoom calls after Katie left. But the heart of it really was born of putting this together and trying to figure out what was going on in terms of specificity of knowledge. Yeah. And one test of a great theory or framework is its ability to organize and explain findings that previously were difficult to organize and explain. So kudos for all the things that you did to get to this point. So where did your ideas about prior knowledge come from? What kinds of other literature might have informed the way that you started thinking about prior knowledge? Comprehension research has most of these components that we've been thinking about for years. And that's one of the things that has spurred us on in thinking about how, well, when we talk about comprehension, we build measures on how to assess the coherence of their comprehension. We measure the specificity of their comprehension. We measure the amount of comprehension and the accuracy. But we have ignored that complex set of knowledge that they come into before we give them something to comprehend or learn from. And so we, that's one of the things that we saw as a gap in the literature, which was you know, ignored by, I'd say, me and others who are studying comprehension. So in your article, you talk about some differences between background knowledge and background information and prior knowledge. Can you talk to us about that so we can better understand them? Yeah. Often when we think about these, again, the sort of haves and have nots of prior knowledge, when you think about it in only these high and low terms, a lot of times what happens is that we talk about giving people a background reading before they begin a task. And that tends to be the thing that we do to solve the problem of differences in prior knowledge. And I think that has a lot of face validity, but having worked with Danielle for a long time, I have learned that that's not effective and it's not helpful and it can be potentially damaging. And so I think it's really important for us to talk about this idea of part of why we want to to measure knowledge more carefully is thinking about the fact that prior knowledge about what a student comes in with that is part of their long-term representation of their knowledge base is quite different than giving someone a pre-reading or an anchor reading and assuming that that has resolved the problem of prior knowledge. It it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to really carefully think about what is comprehension and what is knowledge. I would say it's not knowledge until you've slept on it. And mm-hmm. that is related to memory research. And it's, it's, it's pretty well established that consolidation is important for mm-hmm. long-term memory. And mm-hmm. obviously, we have forgetting after that point. But in any setting, in any situation, if you give someone something to read, that's a comprehension task. If mm. you tell someone something, that's a comprehension task. Mm. They are always coming in with a different set of knowledge. And that may also depend on their mood and uh, how much they ate and how much they slept in terms of how much knowledge they can activate or pay attention to. But a task is a task. So you can't give someone knowledge. And that's something that I guess I'd like to drive home. Knowledge is not a consumption task. Mm -hmm. Comprehension is that you can't consume things. It's a misconception in our entire educational system to think that if I give a lecture or if I have someone read something that they have consumed something and that it's their fault if they did not understand it, or just because you covered it, that you have solved that problem. 
And mm-hmm. so the issue of giving someone background information, we always have to keep in mind that that background information is part of the comprehension task. It's not something that you have given. You can't give people things like that. And so I, I guess I would like to drive that home just a little bit mm-hmm. for people to understand the difference between prior knowledge and the information that you would like to convey to students and to others. Daniel, you made a a really nice point earlier that these four dimensions interact and they're all important to think about and that there are different kind of sub areas of research on text comprehension and learning that maybe more heavily focus on one or the other amount versus you know coherence or accuracy and this reminds me of all the literature on epistemic cognition multiple source use multiple text comprehension etc so For those researchers, for researchers who have maybe focused on one dimension or maybe two, how do you suggest they begin exploring multiple dimensions of prior knowledge? What tips do you have for them to kind of get started walking down that path? Yeah, that's a really great question because it's a really hard problem. We don't think that you can tackle all of them at the same time. Let's say that. Mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to, we've, we've actually done this. I have a student who's put together sets of questions that are aligned in different ways in terms of specificity in relation to a multi-document set. And then how to think about coherence, that's a very hard problem. I don't know that we can do that with questions. I think that that's going to be a different answer. Mm. But, you know, I, I think the hardest part of this is time. Mm, mm-hmm. So when we think about how to measure knowledge in different ways, then we also have to consider the time that it will take and the payoff for it. In essence, when we've discussed this, it always comes down to really what we're trying to do is have researchers and educators think about what they need to know about knowledge in relation to the questions they're asking Mm -hmm. and to not treat knowledge as a, you know, just a bag of stuff. Hmm. And most of the multi-doc research that I have seen so far, there's very little treatment of knowledge except as a covariate. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's, you know, knowledge is there and I have to take it out of the variance, not any sense of if someone has lower knowledge, they need a different type of text or what kinds of texts or uh, as you were talking about with relation to vaccine, do they need to be reading something else? So it is a hard nut to crack, but Mm -hmm. it is always in relation to what your goals are. So if you can think about the goals, then you can think about what kind of measures and indices that you need. And I think I want to jump in to Danielle's point about really thinking, kind of working backwards, right? What types of outcomes would you expect to see? And based on that, what kinds of prior knowledge might be most important for a particular task, for a particular activity? And so that's one thing to think about. And I think the other thing that's really important that we started talking about was that thinking about multiple dimensions also tells us and, and allows us to think about is that there really isn't such a thing as somebody having no knowledge of the topic, 
mm-hmm. right? Or of no knowledge that would be useful for them for this particular task. Mm-hmm. They know something, maybe it's more general, maybe it's not as related, but they might have some knowledge. And thinking about how we measure what a student has is much more powerful stance than just saying, oh, the student doesn't know anything and how do we help them? Mm-hmm. We give them the knowledge that they're missing as opposed to saying, Let's find out what they know and the nature of what they know and use that as a starting point about how we build up their knowledge. And I think that that's really important. That's a great point. And there are a number of places in your article where you talk about how differences on these dimensions may be far more complex than simply using prior knowledge as a covariate or simply assuming that someone doesn't know anything. Uh, You talked about, for example, knowledge thresholds that the relationship between knowledge and an outcome may differ depending upon the amount of knowledge they have or the kind of knowledge they have or its accuracy. Can you unpack that idea of knowledge thresholds just a little bit so our listeners understand it? Yeah, so this was actually something that came out of some of the work we were doing with our colleagues at ETS, and they have a paper, Tineho O'Reilly is the first author, but then the knowledge threshold hypothesis comes from the study that they did where they looked at the correlation, like we sort of started this conversation with this, there's this very robust finding that prior knowledge is correlated with comprehension performance. But what they found is they used a broken line regression technique to demonstrate that at a certain point, there is a relation between knowledge and performance on a comprehension outcome. But up to that point, there isn't a relation. So there is a sort of base amount of knowledge you might need before you see this connection between those two things. And so it isn't this perfectly linear relationship, but actually that there might be sort of qualitative differences around what happens for people with extremely low knowledge versus people who have a a decent amount. And in that study, they were looking at vocabulary knowledge, but largely they're thinking about this idea that those things might not be happening in a linear way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it strikes me that those thresholds may certainly be evidence that there's a nonlinear relationship between, say, amount and an outcome, but they also may be indicative that there's more than one dimension influencing that relationship. That's right. And so I thought that was a really nice illustration of the importance of considering multiple dimensions of knowledge using your framework. And that's actually something that they show in the data, and it's not the most pronounced finding, but if you really look at what they're doing, they they demonstrate that certain items on that test are more predictive of whether or not you'll be above or below that threshold. So some ideas are very important and very central, Mm -hmm. and some of the ideas aren't. And so that does get at the idea of specificity um, sort of embedded within Mm -hmm. that. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeff, I want to build on something you just said Mm -hmm. regarding notch focusing on whether someone does or doesn't have knowledge. It is something that really inspired me early on in my career Mm -hmm. when I started looking at the effects of self-explanation in tandem with comprehension strategy instruction. And the notion that I was looking at was that we need ways of helping those who don't have specific knowledge. So they may have knowledge about the world, but they don't have knowledge of the text. Mm-hmm. And so how can we devise ways, instruction or different types of texts that will scaffold those who are low knowledge in the domain, but they have general knowledge so they can use reasoning, make sense and apply that knowledge and learn to use it in order to make sense of texts and lectures and discourse that they don't know enough about mm-hmm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I, I like the way you phrased it in that 
self-explanation, other things, you have to have some kind of knowledge. And the question is, if you don't have much specific or relevant knowledge, what can we build on to help people begin to understand? And I think that's a, a really nice way to describe it. It reminds me of the discussion you have in the paper about expertise and how there are qualitative differences in the knowledge between experts and even people who might be competent in an area. Danielle, I think your work has illustrated that there's qualitative differences between people who are competent and people who are novices or um, somewhat ignorant of an area. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, yeah. I guess I would take issue on one thing you're talking about because Mm -hmm. there's a tendency in the literature to conflate expertise and levels of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of work that shows effects of knowledge, what we're talking about is knowledge for the same population. Hmm. So I've got a group of eighth graders. None of them are experts. They all need to learn the information. And some of them have more domain knowledge than others, but none of them are experts. And sometimes people call that expertise effects. It's it's not because none of them are experts. And the other kinds of research have looked at, you know, comparing a biology expert to a group of undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's very different because the biology experts don't need to learn the information. Those researchers are looking at how people think or how people approach ideas. And honestly, I've never, I've never done that kind of research that mm-hmm. I can remember in mm-hmm. terms of looking at experts versus novices. Mm-hmm. What I've always been interested in is within the same population, looking at how to scaffold those who might get left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And again, I think you're illustrating really well that the differences within a particular population, within a particular group of students, when it comes to prior knowledge, can vary in a bunch of different ways. Maybe it's amount, maybe it's accuracy, maybe it's coherence, maybe it's specificity, maybe it's more than one. And we've been kind of painting over those differences by just looking at, you know, 10 item multiple choice assessments. Yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> well, so I, <laughs> I definitely do it. And it's because of time and because those 10 items can be quite diagnostic if you pick the items that are of interest. I think what I would take most issue with is something you alluded to, which is to say something like all of them were undergraduates and thus they all had the same amount of knowledge. I can't mm-hmm. count the number of papers I've seen that in. And Mm -hmm. you do not equate knowledge by choosing people from the same classroom or the same population. Knowledge Mm -hmm. varies enormously among people Mm -hmm. and in different Mm -hmm. ways. Yep. Again, I think your your paper does a really nice job of illustrating all the ways that knowledge can vary and how important it is to try to take that into account, certainly when it comes to text comprehension. You mentioned some other domains, other areas of scholarship that these four dimensions might be really important to consider. What are some other domains that you would hope scholars in those areas would start taking knowledge and the way to measure it in more diverse ways? I think part of it too is that I've always thought of myself as a comprehension researcher, very broadly construed, and I happen to do it largely in text because text is a nice way of studying it and text is the way that we often get a lot of our information. So I think very broadly, if you are trying to learn something, your prior knowledge matters. Mm -hmm. So anyone interested in learning in any capacity, I think we'd have to be more specific, of course, about 
exactly what those dimensions look like and how they might shake out differently. But I think that these things are going to demonstrate themselves in a variety of domains that are not just text specific. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to count the domains where it would not be relevant. People who are interested in how people learn across, you know, physics, computer science, in elementary school, it's really a wide variety of researchers, I hope, are inspired to think about how knowledge might affect, interact, and inform them in terms of how to help students. I think also in terms of, we've talked a lot about what researchers can do here, but I also think about it in the context of educators. Mm -hmm. more broadly. And one of the things that actually was an impetus for this project was I had also been talking to some of our teacher partners and some of my teacher friends, and like they all know prior knowledge matters. They've heard that a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And so they know they're supposed to measure prior knowledge. And so they do, and they often do it with either like a know-want-learn chart or they're giving sort of a quick quiz. And then they know that some students have more or less knowledge, but then they don't really know what to do with that and how to provide support for their student. Mm -hmm. And I think because we've been very simple or thinking about it as a covariate or thinking about it as high and low, we haven't been very articulate about what that means for our practice. Mm -hmm. And so I think by us thinking about it this way and having educators and instructors thinking about these things more dimensionally, we can provide better supports. And so I think that's another arena in which this might be very helpful. I really like that point. It strikes me that differentiation in the classroom, we often talk about prior knowledge being a, a good thing to differentiate on, but you know there could be multiple dimensions of prior knowledge that matter, and differentiation might look different depending on whether students differ in amount or accuracy, et cetera. So I think that's a really wonderful point. So when you think about the implications of your work, I agree. I think there's implications for just about anyone that studies learning. I'm curious as to the things that you're working on right now that you're really excited about that you know may or may not have been influenced by this work. What, what has you um, excited to jump on the computer in the morning? I think one of the things that the framework really set up for us is there are a lot of potential dimensions and interactions across four different moving pieces. And so there's just so much that we can do to dig into these ideas. And we're, we're making the argument that different dimensions might matter differently for different tasks and texts and contexts, mm -hmm. and all of that stuff can be explored. And so a lot of the things I've started thinking about, Danielle alluded to this before, is thinking about things like inaccurate information or misconceptions mm -hmm. in the context of also, but how much do you know about this topic in particular? Mm -hmm. And how much science knowledge do you have if you're doing a text about vaccines mm -hmm. um, and starting to look at a couple of dimensions at a time and thinking about what the task might be and how certain combinations might be more or less relevant for a particular task and what does that really look like. So my lab's been developing a couple of prior knowledge tests to try to get at that and activities that might target some of those things. And uh, in my lab currently, I have projects that are funded in multiple areas Two of those areas, as you alluded to earlier, are about multi-document comprehension, and the other one has to do with misconceptions. In the misconception work, what we're building is a set of facts. So what we started doing last year is meeting and going through all of the misconceptions that we could find, discussing them one by one, and creating a large set of them that we're currently piloting to examine whether they truly are misconceptions in a large group of people. And then what we're going to do is to take this set, and there's different kinds of misconceptions. You know, we were talking about some misconceptions are just 
facts. They're not very mm-hmm. complex, whereas others, in essence, are represented by a more complex reasoning or a more complex set of thoughts. And our, our next set of studies, uh, well, we've collected a lot of data, and then uh, we're going to examine differences between domains and types of misconceptions. And eventually, we're going to take those individual ideas or facts, if they're true, and misconceptions if they're false, and start looking more at how we can overcome them, help students to understand the alternatives, et cetera, and what kind of interventions that we need to build in order to help students. And the other set, as I was talking about, was multi-document research. And that's a little bit harder because multi-document research takes a lot of time in and of itself because they have to read four documents at least Mm -hmm. and then answer questions about it. But we are building sets of questions that are differentially related in terms of specificity and domain. Well, I think your examples here really illustrate well the power of the framework. And, you know, I will say as someone that's interested in misconceptions and misinformation, I think that entire area of scholarship would benefit from reading this article and thinking through the implications of these different dimensions of knowledge. And in this case, maybe accuracy, not accurate, the coherence of those inaccurate pieces of knowledge, et cetera, for not only identifying people who might harbor some misconceptions, but also how best to work with them. So I'm excited for the implications of this article for scholarship in that area and plenty of other areas too, as you stated. Let's wrap it up here for today. Uh, I, I really encourage our listeners to check out your 2021 article in Educational Psychologist entitled The Multidimensional Knowledge and Text Comprehension Framework. It's a great article. It, it covers a lot of new ground. I think it's going to really help people better conceptualize prior knowledge, how to measure it, and how to study how it affects all kinds of learning outcomes. So thank you again for that work, and thanks for talking to me today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.